Lord Jesus, King of the universe, we pray that our weary and restless hearts would find their rest in you, that we might look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, the Prince of Peace, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Some years ago, when Fitzsimmons Allison graduated from seminary, years before he went on to become the Bishop of South Carolina, he had a meeting with the Bishop of Upper South Carolina to determine where he was going to go after he had graduated seminary. And so he went to Bishop Gravatt's office and sat there, and much to Fitz's surprise, Bishop Gravatt told him that he would be going back to Trinity Cathedral, Columbia, where Fitz had grown up and where he had been sent into the ministry. Well, Fitz's initial response was one of, of dismay, and he began to protest and finally said to the bishop, well, bishop, you know that a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and among his own kin. And the bishop looked at him and said, oh, Fitz, I don't think that there's any chance they would mistake you for a prophet. Jesus. The very last of them was John the Baptist, and he was a good representation of those who went before him. They were literally speaking the word of the Lord to the people. The church today can speak a prophetic word, but like the prophets of old, it is a word rooted in the scriptures congruent with the heart of God. The closest thing that we have in the New Testament church is the office of teacher. But rather than God communicating directly to the individual, God speaks through his word, which the teacher expounds. To be called to the Old Testament office of prophet must seem to us like a wonderful and high calling, like winning the spiritual lottery. A high calling? Yes. But rarely did they feel as if they were winning. More often than not, the words of the prophets went unheeded, and even when they listened, prophets could show resentment. Even so, we see here in Ezekiel that the primary responsibility of a prophet is not to persuade, but to declare. And some of the things that we learn from the lives of the prophets in the Old Testament, being a prophet makes you unpopular. Being a prophet means humbling yourself. Being a prophet means having a heart for the people to whom you are prophesying. It means you loving your people, your nation. And being a prophet means heartache. Being a prophet makes you unpopular. Now, there were exceptions to this. John the Baptist himself had a pretty sizable group of people who went after him. Uh, Jesus, in his prophetic ministry, uh, indeed had people going after him. Uh, but more often than not, if people are in close with the seat of power, they're normally not being faithful to their calling in the Old Testament. The role of prophet meant speaking truth to power, as Bayard Rustin once said. Needless to say, very rarely was the word of the prophet heeded. It would get you, at best, thrown out of town, at worst, executed. More than just being unpopular, being a prophet meant being met with continuing, relentless resistance. 
This is often humiliating, but it's always humbling. Being a prophet means humbling oneself. You don't speak for yourself, but you speak the word of the Lord. It means complete surrender to the Lord. It means laying down your life, giving up everything, hopes, dreams, ambitions, plans. It's no wonder that there were times when the prophets were resentful. Here we have Ezekiel, 30 years old, entering fully into his priestly duties and ought to have been at the temple in Jerusalem. But here he was in Babylon, in exile, and about to prophesy that the temple would be no more. Wouldn't you be just a little resentful? And on top of that, knowing that the word that you preach to the people will go completely unheeded. Even so, being a prophet means having a heart for the people to whom you are prophesying. It means you loving your people and your nation. Now, there are exceptions to this, namely Jonah. You remember the Lord called him and said, go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, no. Uh, and so Jonah was rescued, actually, by a great fish and was spat out upon the ground. And surprisingly enough, that got Jonah's attention. And he decided that he would go to Nineveh. And he began to preach to the people. And do you know what happened? God moved mightily in that place. And their hearts were turned. And they turned to the Lord. And they were saved both physically and spiritually. And Jonah's response, I knew that you were a God of just of compassion. I knew that you would save these people. He actually resented the Lord for saving them. But Jonah is reminded, and so are we, do not begrudge the mercy of the Lord, especially, most especially, for those who despise the message. In our culture today, uh, there is a growing demographic that I've talked about before, the nuns. Uh, someone this morning at the 7.30 was not listening very closely and thought that I was talking about the women in the habits. And yet, uh, these nuns are people that 10 years ago would have said, I'm a Christian, or even said, I'm a Baptist, a Roman Catholic, an Episcopalian. And now they don't identify with any of those categories. But what we found in the research is that over the last 10 years, those people who now say they are nuns have not changed their beliefs. They disbelieved as much then as they do now. But the culture now allows them to be honest about where they are spiritually, which is not a bad thing. But what it means is that there is a growing sense of disbelief. And what does the church have to say to us? And what is the church good for? Uh, it uh, was not that long ago that Peter Berger from Boston University uh, was pontificating about the state of religion in America. And he thought, well, the most religious and devout nation in the world is India. And the most secular nation in the world is Sweden. And so Peter Berger used to describe America as a nation populated by Indians and governed by Swedes. But we're finding that that's actually less and less the case.
Christian Smith, when he was a sociology professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, conducted one of the most extensive research studies on religion and youth in America. His national study on youth and religion produced some very interesting, challenging, and disturbing statistics. Most notably amongst our own denomination, the Episcopal Church. And he surveyed a, a huge group of people and he broke it down by all American teens and then broke it down by people who affiliated with a denomination and grouped those together. And so he asked them, have you this week felt very or extremely close to God? The average American teen, 38% said yes. 22% of Episcopal teens said yes. Do you believe in life after death? 50% of American teens said yes. 35% of Episcopal teens said yes. Belief in a judgment day? 80% of American teens said yes. 60% of Episcopal teens said yes. Faith is very or extremely important in shaping my daily life. 60% of American teens said yes. 40% of Episcopal teens said yes. Made a personal commitment to live life for God. 69% of American teens said yes. 32% of American 32% of Episcopal teens said yes. Family talks about religious things once a week or more. 45% of American teens said yes. 27% of Episcopal teens said yes. Believe that most or all adults in the congregation are hypocrites. 7% of American teens said yes. 35% of Episcopal teens said yes. The only category in which the Episcopal church did better than the culture. Now, what ought to disturb us is the fact is, looking at these statistics, that the culture is doing a better job of evangelizing teenagers than the church is. And that, in fact, that it would be better to leave the teenagers outside of the culture and not have any interaction with the Episcopal Church. They would fare better statistically, spiritually speaking. Now, it's no surprise why this has happened. Our a verse that guides our evangelism in the Episcopal Church is Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one. And we found that if you aim at nothing, you are sure to hit it. Well, in this day and age, when there's a growing sense of disbelief from the old to the young, how do we speak a word of God into their lives? Well, one thing I would say is that faithfulness, not success, is our calling in a culture of disbelief. And those very people who struggle with belief, who might be antagonistic, even militant against belief, are the very ones whom Jesus came to save. And whether they'll admit it or not, desperately long to hear the message of salvation in Jesus Christ, in his death, and in his resurrection. And so being a prophet, more often than not, even in the face of sometimes fierce resistance, it means you love the people. You love your nation. Now this is not a sermon on how to live life in exile. 
If you want to know more about that, you can read Jeremiah or the book of Daniel. Uh, there's a lot going on there. But what we're talking about today is the role of the prophet in a culture of disbelief, much like Ezekiel's culture. Ezekiel longed to see the salvation of his people. He was in exile and he longed to see his nation restored. Israel and Judah coming together, no longer a divided kingdom. And he would prophesy of the day when there would no longer be a divided kingdom. And he was given the vision of a new temple. There have been and will be great times of discouragement and dismay. That's been throughout all of history. And each successive generation often falls into the pitfall of thinking that this is the worst that it's ever been. There's a wonderful New Yorker cartoon, which is a little bit profane, but I'm going to use it because it fits the bill. Uh, but it has these two barbarians with their horned helmets and their pikes and their armor on, and they're followed by this great multitude of other barbarian soldiers going on to the next conquest to burn and pillage and destroy. And the one barbarian with the eye patch looks at the other and asks, do you think the world is really going to hell, or are we just getting old? Original sin, brokenness, is evenly distributed over place and time. There's not one generation more or less sinful than those who have gone before or after. And so, like Ezekiel, we know that for the Christian, optimism can be naive, but pessimism is atheistic. In spite of our brokenness, in spite of our discord, Jesus still reigns. He is still king. He is still Lord. And there are those in our world, just when we think we might have it bad, that are dying because of their faith in Jesus. And because of this life-changing word that Jesus gives us, that the prophets declared of old, that's why we love the people so much. That's why we are grieved so much. That is why we find heartache in a culture of disbelief. You know, most of the prophets do not live to see the promises they proclaim fulfilled. They more often live to see their judgments fulfilled. Even John the Baptist died before seeing the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he died in despair, in prison, wondering, Jesus, are you the one? And so, we know that it has everything to do with the message and not the messenger. And we've been given this amazing opportunity in our culture, which we might call a kairos moment, a special time of God, an appointed time, a supreme time, to respond to the great cry in a nation, in a world, screaming for answers. The church has so often been silent. And for many reasons, we are the reason why we're in the shape we're in. David Brooks last week in the New York Times wrote, We live in a society plagued by formlessness and radical flux in which bonds, social structures, and commitments are strained and frayed. Millions of kids live in stressed and fluid living arrangements. 
Many communities have suffered a loss of social capital. Many young people grow up in a sexual and social environment rendered barbaric because there are no common norms. Many adults hunger for meaning and goodness, but lack a spiritual vocabulary to think things through. This is a gospel moment. And this is the opportunity to do what has been hard for the church to do, which is not to be over and against the culture, to pull the drawbridge up, to build walls, but in fact to engage the culture with the gospel. And maybe it may be that they're stubborn and they do not want to hear it, but they will know that there has been a prophet among them. But what God has done for us is he's fulfilled the word of the prophets. And he has sent to us not simply a prophet, but a priest and a king. There have been throughout the history of the world times of great doubt, great pain, great agitation. But let us remember that no power on this earth can put Jesus back into the tomb. Jesus is alive. He reigns. And echoing the spirit of 1776, we have no king but Jesus. Just when we think it's bad, I would challenge you to look back at 18th century England before the Wesleyan revivals, and there John Newton, the great hymn writer, uh, uh, former slave trader turned Christian minister, wrote uh, often about what was going on in the culture, and his hymns reflect that struggle. And so I want to quote to you in its totality a hymn from John Newton. Pensive, doubting, fearful heart. Hear what Christ the Savior says. Every word should joy impart. Change thy mourning into praise. Yes, he speaks and speaks to thee. May he help thee to believe. Then thou presently wilt see thou hast little cause to grieve. Fear thou not, nor be ashamed. All thy sorrows soon shall end. I who heaven and earth have framed am thy husband and thy friend. I, the High and Holy One, Israel's God by all adored, as thy Savior will be known, thy Redeemer and thy Lord. For a moment I withdrew, and thy heart was filled with pain. But my mercies I renew, thou shalt soon rejoice again. Though I scorn to hide my face, very soon my wrath shall cease. Tis but for a moment's space, ending in eternal peace. When my peaceful bow appear, bow appears, painted on the watery cloud, tis to dissipate thy fears, lest the earth should be overflowed. Tis an emblem, too, of grace, of my covenant love a sign. Though the mountains leave their place, thou shalt be forever mine. Though afflicted, tempest-tossed, comfortless a while thou art, do not think thou canst be lost. Thou art graven on my heart. All thy walls I will repair. Thou shalt be built anew, and in thee shall peer what a God of love can do. On this day of all days, we ought to remember the freedom that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. 
and in those moments of disbelief and discouragement, that you would turn to him who reigns and is king. Amen. Amen.